In recent weeks, we have been unfolding the mission statement and the spiritual dynamics and the fresh initiatives and so on. The mission statement of our church that we are unpacking and trying to explain and absorb is on page one, and it's also on this uh, refurbished banner that is back now, and Lord willing, will be there for many months to come. And it is a magnificent and beautiful banner. And I want to thank the people that worked on it very, very, very much. Spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, is what we are about at this church. And then on page two, on the inside of the cover here, is the spiritual dynamic that drives that church, that mission, joining God in that magnification of his supremacy through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, treasuring all that God is, loving all whom he loves, praying for all his purposes, meditating on all his word, and sustained by all his grace. And page seven, during Missions Week, we held up this reaffirmed vision of 2,000 by 2,000 to send and to harvest 2,000 people by the year 2000. And now, beginning last Sunday, we are unpacking page three, the fresh initiatives for the immediate future of our mission. And last week, we focused on fresh initiative number one. We will take new practical steps to develop an atmosphere where personal, deepening, supportive, faith-building relationships of love are highly valued as expressions of our passion for the supremacy of God's love. Now, today, we move to fresh initiative number two, but let me pause to say a word about this term, fresh initiative. Um, for some, the term fresh initiative is unsettling because we like to have things not stale, but same. We, we chose the word fresh to give a positive spin to change, but it's change that's implied on this page. And change is hard. We all like to have things fit like an old shoe. I wouldn't want to wear a new pair of shoes every week. I like them to start to fit and then you don't feel them anymore and that's good. And we like to have church that way and home that way and family that way and job that way. Newness makes us uncomfortable. And that natural and healthy bent to want things comfortable can ossify and harden into a situation where even good and needed change becomes threatening, like you'll break if it bends anymore, and therefore we are in grave danger at times of not being open to what God might be calling us to do. What I've tried to do this fall in preaching a sermon on page one and five sermons on page two, and then a sermon on page seven, the reaffirmed vision, is to build a solid, unchanged foundation underneath page three. Everything I have said with regard to our commitments to the supremacy of God in all things for the joy of all peoples and our treasuring all that God is and our believing in him and our 
um, praying for all his purposes and our uh, meditating on all his word and our being sustained by all his grace are all reiterations of old and glorious foundations at Bethlehem. There is a rock-solid, unchanging foundation here. God's word is sure. God's glory is central. God's grace is all-sufficient. Our affirmation of faith printed in our Constitution is unwavering. Our reformed orientation on the sovereignty of God is as strong as ever. Our openness to the whole work of the Holy Spirit is as wide as ever. Our desire for all the fullness of God is as intense as ever. Our commitment to world evangelization is unchanged. Our sense that it is important to combine head and heart is unchanged. Our longing to see this city touched and awakened by the reviving power of the Holy Spirit is unchanged. And if you care to read about two dozen other unchanged things, read the values pages. Because what this document presents is a massive foundation of absolutely unaltered reality from the last 125 years, and especially the last 15. Hello? I got that from John Wimber. Nevertheless, page three is change. It's change. If you need equilibrium in these days, read page one, page two, page four, page five, page six, and page seven. And if you want to be made alive to a new thing that God is doing, join me on page three. Fresh initiatives. I do not know what these are going to look like at Bethlehem. These initiatives are not a program. They are a direction. They are a trajectory. There are 17 task forces. I sit on one of them that are working to flesh out this document into what it might look like. If you want to know who sits on those and what they are, there is a new stack of them on the information table as you leave, cross the commons, pick it up. It's a white sheet of paper. Phone numbers beside them. Call them. Talk to them. Seventeen task forces with all their hundred phone numbers listed there. They're the people that are praying and pondering and dreaming about what God's fingerprints on this document will look like in the years to come. No human is managing this process. I don't go to these committees. I don't know what they're thinking. God is managing it, and the train is already moving, and different people, as I see it happening, are getting on the train from all different sides. I almost missed a train. In fact, I did miss a train in Munich one time. I was supposed to be going to Amsterdam, and I couldn't read German well enough. I'm standing there, and this train's ready to pull out, and I had this critical decision, do I get on or not? And I got on. And with my stumbling German said to this guy, said, Fahren wir nach Amsterdam? Nein! <laughs> oh, 
But it worked. I mean, God saves you one way or the other. But this people were getting on a train from all sides. And uh, and we all got on. And I think the train is moving. And some are on the left side way down there getting on. Some are right here getting on. Or some are here getting on. And they can't even see the people getting on this train called Bethlehem. And we're going to meet in the middle in a few months. Around March 17. And it'll all come together. We'll see a lot more clearly what this is going to look like. Fresh initiative, number one, was all about relationships of love. Fresh initiative, number two, which I talk about this morning, is called the Urban-Suburban Partnership. Read it with you. We will strive to forge a mutually enriching urban-suburban partnership in which a significant range of racially, educationally, and economically diverse people feel at home as they grow in their passion for the supremacy of God. Now, let me give you some background before we look at the text that underpins this initiative. In order to understand why in the world is this in one of our six fresh initiatives, why is this a priority, in order to understand the background, you need to understand two things or see the background in two different ways. Here's number one. At this church, in this room now and in the, in the room that we'll fill up here in, in, a, in another hour or so, there are two kinds of people. Of course, there are hundreds of kinds of people, but at least two. There are those who live in the suburbs and those who live in the inner city or in the central urban core of this city. To be specific. 12%, when we did the survey this time last year, 12% of our people live within five minutes of this church. Those are the urban dwellers. 21% live between five and 15 minutes away. 35% live between 15 and 25 minutes away. And 11% live over 25 minutes away. So that you can see that if you were to take a map, the uh, people who come to this church and regularly attend are just scattered all over the Twin Cities. Eighty-eight percent live outside the urban center. Forty-six percent live over 15 minutes away. Now, ever since I came to this church in 1980 and moved into the neighborhood, seven-minute walk away across the bridge over there, used to be where Tom Steller lives over there, both of them were seven minutes, depending on which houses you walked around. Ever since I moved here in 1980, we have said proximity implies accountability. It's been a watchword. And very soon then after I came, we added a minister or an associate pastor for urban ministries. David Michael has been on board for a long time. Dozens of families have moved into the city, probably 60 households or so. Ministries of all kinds have developed in the urban core, in the center. Urban ministries has been, is now, and will be priority of this church for a simple reason. We're here. And the rich man in hell was not rebuked for not caring for all the poor in his city. 
He was rebuked for not caring for Lazarus who sat at his door that he walked by every day. That's all. We drive here or we walk here and proximity implies some accountability. Hence the priority. It's a given for me. So there's tension now. At least I hear there is. I don't feel it as much as some feel it, but but it's there. And the tension between the herbs and the verbs, as we affectionately call one another, is that we sometimes are a little suspicious of one another's motives, a little wondering about pride in the one and whatever in the other. And initiative number two is addressing that intra-Bethlehem issue. Can we trust one another? Can we believe in one another? Can we affirm one another's call and ministry in the suburbs and in the cities without feeling competitive or threatening? That's the background, number one. Here's background number two. Those who live in the suburbs and those who live in the urban center relate in their neighborhoods to potential believers, that is, people we want to extend the love of Christ to and win to the kingdom of God, they relate to dramatically different kinds of people. For example, in 1990, these are the most recent census statistics that I have from the city report, 13% of the population of Minneapolis proper was African American and 1.3% of that, or 3.3% was Native American. Now, of course, if you take, that's Minneapolis proper. That's all the way south to however south Minneapolis goes. Well, how far does it go? The Crosstown, 494, I'm not sure where Minneapolis stops. It's a big city. If you take the urban core where we are and where a lot of us live, that proportion of color dramatically increases. Whereas, for example, the suburban metro area outside Minneapolis and St. Paul proper have 1.3% African American and 0.04% Native American. Negligible figures, to say the least. Therefore, the people that we are pressed against and deal with in our neighborhoods and those we care about are different kinds of people if you're a suburbanite or an inner city Weller. The diversity in, in the city, in other words, is much more intense. The challenges of local evangelization, therefore, and disciple-making and assimilation to fellowship in small groups and in the church is radically different depending on where you live. And that's the other way of thinking about initiative number two. We must not only learn how to get along with each other here when we choose to live in different places, we must also figure out a way of being a kind of church that can somehow appropriately respond to our ministry among the people that we live with. And our sense on the master planning team and the elders and the staff is that more and more God is calling us to broaden the range of people who feel at home here. Now notice the wording that we use. In which, third line here, in which a significant range 
obviously ambiguous, intentionally ambiguous. A direction, not a program. A significant range of racially, educationally, economically diverse people feel at home. Now, the master planning team and the elders are not completely naive about this. We know that there are limits to who can feel at home where and how broad the diversity can be and still call it home. For example, we are committed to speaking English on Sunday morning. And by that commitment, we immediately make this an inhospitable place for most of the world's population. Okay? Most of the world will not feel at home because they won't know what's going on here. They can't speak English. And so that commitment to speak English massively disenfranchises billions of people from this congregation. We know that, and there are other factors that would have not as big an impact, but similar. And so we're not naive as to think, oh, come on, come all, everything to everybody. That's not realistic, and we realize that it's not realistic. If initiative number two is not meant to say everything to everybody, here's what it's meant to say. For the last 15 years, the range has been too narrow. Okay? That's what it's meant to say. For the last 15 years, those are my years, the range of at-homeness in this church Economically, educationally, racially has been too narrow. That's the point of initiative number two. And the aim is to broaden it. And if you say, how broad? I don't know how broad. I don't know what's possible for us. We're just pushing it. That's the point. We're pushing it. And there's, there's groups working on that. Three or four different groups have a bearing on that issue of how broad you can push. Those are the two backgrounds. Now we go to the Word of God. So, if you got your finger in Colossians 3, I want to read verses 8 through 17 of Colossians 3. There are two words here. I mean, you could preach for a year, of course, on these verses. I know that. And I, I would love it. In fact, I'm going to pray right now that God will do this. I would love it if the two things I've picked out here to press on our consciences would be only two among, say, several dozen that you hear and that the Holy Spirit uses in your life. He's always doing that sort of thing on Sunday mornings. And I got my sermon planned and I preach what I think you ought to hear and boom, you hear another word and it's his word. And that's glorious to watch him do that. So let me pray and ask him to really be about it now. Father in heaven, as we open this text now for a few minutes, Your wealth of truth is so great. This is like a a great fountain being opened up for these 400, 500 people to gather around and drink from different sides of the fountain. And I pray that when I read this text, we look at it together. You, on behalf of Fresh Initiative number 2 and any other need that these people have right now, will speak with life-changing power. 
the name of Jesus, I ask. Amen. Starting at verse 8. But now you also put them aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. So put aside all that slanderous, abusive speech from your mouth. Just put it aside. Lay it down. Do not lie to one another. Since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So just stop there a minute. We're talking the church here. Here's the new church. It's laying off old stuff and it's putting on new stuff and it's being shaped into the image of the one who created him. And this is why remarkable unity can happen among incredibly diverse people because you've got the old fallen and the new coming and Christ creating an image of his own in the church. Verse 11, this renewal in it There is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian. Know any barbarians? There are barbarians today. Scythian, I'll come back to that word. Slave, free man. So so there aren't Those differences aren't gripping people. They aren't enslaving people in the church. They aren't... They're they're going. They're they're dying. They're, They're falling away somehow. They are mingling, blending. And how is that happening? Next phrase is the key. But Christ is all. And in all. When I read that yesterday... I just felt this immense blessing. If you would do that, if you would do that, oh Lord, that every soul in this room, when they think about decorations or the choir or the music or the clothes or the temperature or the smell, they would say, Christ is all! And we'd feel it from the bottom of our hearts. And the allness of Christ would be so utterly all-encompassing that whatever differences there are would just be way down there. Let's read the rest of it. And so, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion and kindness and humility and Gentleness and patience. Bearing with one another. Forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so you also should. And beyond all these, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. To which indeed you were called in one body. Be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. 
And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Wow. Don't you just want to say, do it! <laughs> do it! Do it, Lord! That's revival. That's awakening. That's newness. That's the solution to the future. Now there are two points. Two points I want to make. Number one, Christians should choose where they live for Christ's sake. Suburb, urban, or something in between, rural. Choose where you live for Christ's sake. That is, think through reasons to move or stay according to what will most honor Christ. Now I get that from verse 17, where it says, whatever you do, in word or deed, like buying a house or renting an apartment. Get this now. Whatever you do, whether you buy a house or whether you rent an apartment, do all of that in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to him, through him, to God the Father. One of the great dangers in American Christianity is that we absorb the values of our culture and turn Christianity into a micro-moralistic religion that's concerned about adultery and, and bad language and a few other things. And the, 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 the 90% of the choices we make in our ordinary living is, are made just like the world makes them. Don't even think. You don't even bring Jesus into picture when you buy food or clothing or house or take vacations or entertainment or whatever. It's not even, the wheels have just shut down. Oh, it's not Sunday. So we just do it. Just do it. That's a very demonic phrase that Nike uses. Just do it. Just do it. Well, that's not Christianity. You don't just do anything, you do everything in the name of Christ. What does that mean? It means with his authorization, by his strength, for his glory, at least. With his authorization, by his strength, and for his glory. So when you decide whether to live in the city, or on Lake Street, or at the creek, or 494, or Bloomington, or Burnsville, she's going that way. Pray and get Christ's authorization, his strength, and do it for his glory, or don't do it. When you've made that decision, live where you live with all your might, and glorify him and minister there without hindrance. There are good reasons good Christ-exalting reasons for living in the suburbs and good Christ-exalting reasons for living in the urban center. If I served a church that was in the suburbs, I have no doubt I would live in the suburbs. No doubt at all. Get near that church. I'm just hooked on not driving. I hate to drive cars. 
And I gloat watching the freeways on at breakfast in the morning. Watching people throw hours of their lives away on the freeway. Unless, of course, they're listening to sermon tapes or other valuable things like that. But I lived without a car for three years in Munich, Germany, and I fell in love with carlessness. And if I could live without a car here, I'd do it tomorrow, yesterday. But that's my little thing. There are reasons for living near your work and near schools and other things like that. But test your motives. Test your motives. Why do you live where you live? How did you make that choice? Did you buy on the outer ring with appreciation in view? Or did you buy in the city for regentrification in view? Both unworthy motives for choosing a place to live. Do you stay where you stay? Out of good motives or fear, apathy, pride, greed, inordinate love of things. What is driving you? That's the issue of where to live. Do it for Christ's sake. Now, let me clarify something that you've heard, that you hear now, that you're going to hear for years to come, Lord willing, and see if I can make it plain, because I'm afraid when some of you hear it, you are offended by it. But let me try to say it, and uh, if you get offended by it, Tell you you shouldn't be and, and do the best I can to relieve that. It is easier to live in the suburbs than in the city. It is one of the choices that most people who can afford it make. Black or white. If you talk about white flight, there's black flight. All you have to do is afford it. You can document the income level of black communities by just driving out Portland Avenue. There's black flight, there's white flight, there's yellow flight. If you can afford it, you go, right? You just go. That's the way it's done in America. It's easier to live in the suburbs. Everybody, by nature, wants out of this thing called the pain and the mess and the crime of the inner City. That's natural. It's a natural thing to do. I don't know of any church in America that has developed a program to help their urban people be willing to go to the suburbs. Not one. Reason? You don't need it. They're all willing. Okay? Everybody's willing. I'm willing. You're willing. Everybody's willing and ready to move that direction. Such programs don't exist because they're not necessary. You don't need programs to make a ball fall to the ground. Gravity does that, and the gravity in America is toward the suburbs. Downward nobility is un-American. Therefore, here's my conclusion from that observation. Therefore, one of my jobs in this church is to so preach and to so live that some will swim against the tide. And when I preach that way, the people in the suburbs feel bad. You, you feel guilty or something. And you start thinking, well, oh, this is a priority and we're second-class citizens. Well, don't. Just don't. For Jesus' sake, just don't. Don't feel that way. Because 
The reason that I am on a campaign to get people to the city is not because it's wrong to live in the suburbs, but because it's right to live in the city. Gloriously right. And nobody else is going to tell you that. Nobody. That's why I do it. Okay. In short, the church needs no help to move to the suburbs. Zero help. The church needs help to live in the city, to stay in the city, to die in the city. That's what we need help to do. And if you feel guilty when I say that, it's your problem. It's not my problem. My prayer is that as we live in the suburbs and as we live in the cities, God would convert many suburbanites through your suburban ministries who want to be a part of a church that is in the city and loves the city in partnership with the suburbs. I think we can live together without guilt in that regard. If everybody is trusting everybody to do what Christ calls you to do where you live, that's all. But you've got to let me, you got to let me call it like it is without having your feelings hurt. Those two groups... We two groups, we two groups, have to live together. And uh, we in the city must watch out like crazy against pride. Anytime you do a little little venture for God, you, you get this feather in your cap. Oh, I'm a city person. I take risks for Jesus or something like that. Not realizing that everything you have is a gift from God and how you dare boast one millimeter. And there are other vulnerabilities to those who live in the suburbs. We are all vulnerable to sin on this score. That's point number one. Whatever you do in word or deed or renting or buying, do it in the and be at peace. And partner with those who've made different choices and respect each other. Point number two, last point. Verse 11 is the best verse in the Bible that I know of to account for how in the world we're going to manage this phrase in initiative number two, where it says, in this partnership, there's going to be, Lord willing, a significant range. How wide? God knows. A significant range of racially, educationally, economically diverse people feeling more or less at home. Now look at this verse. There is no distinction. This is verse 11, Colossians 3. There is no distinction between Greek and Jew. Circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but as an alternative to those kind of divisions, Christ is all and in all. Now that's amazing. You gotta see how amazing this is. You got to see how amazing this is because some of you don't think it's possible. And if it's not possible, the Bible's not possible. The Bible's not true. Greeks and Jews didn't dress the same. They didn't eat the same. They didn't worship the same. They didn't have the same customs. They suspected each other in every manner of way. 
And they came together in Colossae. And Paul said, doesn't matter. You're just together. And Christ is all. Christ is all. And then he go, he just builds it. Circumcised and uncircumcised. He, he picks on that little part of Jewishness that was especially offensive to the Jews. These are all uncircumcised, unclean. Uh, 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 worship with those people. No way. Barbarian. I mean, Paul, come on. Don't, don't get, don't you, don't overuse language. Does Paul overuse language? Barbarian. Scythian. Lightfoot says that the Scythians, that, that term Scythian had come almost synonymous with the lowest of the low slave class because they, they picked up most slave labor from the tribes around the Black Sea where the Scythians lived. So here you've got these imported, no education, no culture slaves, and they're getting saved. Sons and daughters of the living God. How in the world did they worship together? How in the world did they have small groups together? How in the world did they call each other nice things and go to visit each other when they were sick and, and let their children play together? Answer, Christ was all. Does it make your heart want this? I read this yesterday and I said, Lord, 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 what a glory that would be. Would that every person at Bethlehem would be able to say from the bottom of your heart and sign in every letter. I get letters from David Bryant now and then. David Bryant, the head of Concerts of Prayer International, lives in New York now. He signs all of his letters in all caps. Christ is all. He signs them in David. Christ is all, David. Would that every one of you would sign every one of your letters that way. Every one of you would close every conversation that way. Every one of you would make every suggestion that way. We would all say, Christ is all. Christ is all. What does it look like when Christ is all? When he is such a high value when he is so preeminent, when he is so supreme, that our relationship to him and his presence among us and his power among us is so real that all the Jew, Gentile, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free differences among us, and ours don't come close to those, become negligible. Negligible in relationship to Christ is all. I want to give my life to that. I want to give my life to that. And if you don't want that, you're in the wrong church. If you don't want a, a significant range of racially, educationally, economically diverse human beings, fellowshipping by the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit making Christ all in all, we are so far apart in our goals that I don't know how we could make it together. I hope that's not the case. I pray that Christ 
would be all the way he was all here. So two words. I close with this little summary. Number one, let all that you do, including where you rent and where you buy, be done in the name of Jesus. And number two, let Christ be all in all.